I believe that judges and justices of the peace have got to look at defendants and see them as equals. Equals. The way our system's set up, they're literally on a bench above the prisoner in a box, often cuffed. That isn't a circumstance of equals, but uh, they are equals in this country. We're equals. And the idea that they're the healer and the defendant is the wounded is wrong. That's not, that's not their job. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. This episode's guest is former Attorney General of Ontario, Michael Bryan. Michael's personal story in law is one that spans an entire spectrum of the justice system. After clerking at the Supreme Court of Canada with former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin and obtaining an LLM as a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard, Michael moved seamlessly into the Bay Street elite. From there, he transitioned into politics, where he then became the youngest person ever appointed as Attorney General of Ontario. His time as a top lawyer in the province was filled with productivity, excitement, legislative changes and controversy. No one ever dreamed it would all come to such an abrupt halt in 2009. Michael was charged with dangerous driving causing death and criminal negligence causing death. Although this may have marked the end of anyone else's career in law, for Michael it was a beginning to a very different direction. After extensive investigation and a formidable defense, his charges were withdrawn at the request of the Crown. Michael then spent the next several years recalibrating his objectives and motives in law. In 2015, Michael moved into private practice where he spent a considerable amount of time representing Indigenous accused with Ontario's legal aid system in bail court and on individual certificates. Applying his own experiences within the system and how accused are treated by the courts made him a truly unique and powerful voice among the defense bar. In 2018, Michael channeled his passion into broader issues affecting all Canadians by becoming the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, where he now advocates for Canadians' constitutional rights. Join us to hear about this amazing journey and the lessons Michael has learned from it all on this episode of Of Counsel. First question I ask all of our guests, Michael, is why law? How did you get into it? Is this something that you've always been driven to, or was it politics and then law, or law into politics? How did it all start? It's uh, a boring answer. My dad is a lawyer, and my dad was a politician, and his dad was a politician, and my mom's a teacher, and so I've basically been a lawyer and a teacher my whole life. Uh, I fell into it. It, it came naturally to me. It was entirely my choice. I remember my dad actually not discouraging me, but he did, certainly didn't try to talk me into it. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I just wanted to be like my dad. And then like most adults, uh, 
then discovered his fallibility, but it was too late. Uh, I was I was on his path. So you went uh, started off at law school in Osgoode. So you came from out west into Toronto. I was at UBC. I, I mean, I I figured I just knew exactly what my life was going to look like. That I was going to uh, get my undergraduate degree, go to law school, come back to British Columbia practice law for a couple of years, run for office in BC, because that's the only province that mattered in the world, be a provincial politician, because that's the only jurisdiction that mattered in the world, and then pursue various other delusions of grandeur. What happened along the way is the last term at UBC in an English literature degree, I took a class on Aboriginal politics, and it changed my life, uh, really, because I... I just hadn't, I hadn't known everything that is now uh, better known uh, by many Canadians. But I, I just grew up in a, I think, with a fairly typical education on the subject. In other words, I was ignorant. Uh, and in British Columbia, the history is quite stark because they didn't uh, sign any treaties. They just came and took the land. They, they didn't even bother signing the treaties. And the uh, First Nations developed... Uh, nonetheless, and they developed political power in circumstances where they had no legal powers. And it was just, I still find it remarkable. Uh, this is a province where it was a crime to retain a lawyer. It was a crime for five uh, First Nations people to get together because they thought they were plotting a land claim. It was a crime to hold the uh, religious, uh, economic, and social ritual that was uh, the potlatch. And so they they really criminalized everything uh, to try and get the Indian out of the Indian. And I just, I thought, how could this happen in Canada? And it changed me. So I I ended up doing a graduate degree uh, in Aboriginal Affairs at UBC and then went to law school at Osgoode. Uh, But when I went to Osgoode, it was because I thought the the gurus on the subject were there. uh, And I think they were there at Osgoode. Something else happened. I, you know, I became a liberal. I showed up there a center right son of a Socred. Uh, social credit, British Columbia, and uh, I. By the time I left, I was a, a, a full-on small L uh, feminist liberal. When you went then to law school, you have this in your mind about pursuing uh, Indigenous rights and going after that. Uh, was that even as you went off to clerk the Supreme Court of Canada? Was that part of a larger goal that you wanted to see happen? Yeah, I knew I wanted to work in in that. Or I thought I wanted to work in that field, and I summered at a Vancouver firm with Marvin Storo, uh, who did, uh, who argued the um, the at the time the two major Supreme Court of Canada cases on Aboriginal rights, and I just assumed that I would go back and work uh, with Marvin at Blake's and do land claims uh, in BC, and then run for office. When I was clerking, uh, th- th- all the clerks were. Uh, going for graduate degrees in Ivy League schools or overseas or they're working in New York. And it just seemed like they were leveraging uh, the opportunity that they had. And I fell in love. Uh, Susan and I met, Susan Abramovich, my ex, and I met in Ottawa. She was clerking for Lafayette. I was clerking for McLaughlin. I didn't uh, I didn't want to go back to BC. There's no way I was going to get uh, Montrealer to uh, come back to Victoria, BC. I did a, a degree in Harvard and Susan, while Susan was working in Wall Street. And then when she was working in Paris, I 
was teaching at King's College London. And through that experience, and by the time it was time to come back after we were done in Paris and London working for a bit, all my friends were in Toronto. It had been so long since I've been in BC. I saw the advantage of living in a capital city, a political capital. Uh, I didn't, I wouldn't have lived in Victoria, I would have lived in Vancouver if I'd moved out west. But it didn't matter because my future uh, wife at the time got a job uh, doing entertainment law in Toronto. So Toronto it was. You know, we've had uh, a few guests that have clerked for Supreme Court justices. Uh, Justice David Stratus was on our podcast, uh, Gerald Chan, and I think a few others. But I realized that I've never really got into what it's like on a day-to-day to clerk for a Supreme Court justice. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience is like and then how it may have shaped you as a lawyer? It's definitely different for each judge. Uh, so I can only speak to McLaughlin. I know that uh, some judges were truly reliant on their clerks, and uh, some judges like Beverly McLaughlin, while she was a very good mentor, she didn't need us. Uh, she was just that prolific and that uh, clear in her thinking. And, you know, whether one agrees with her or not, she was very clear on what the right thing to do was once she'd made up her mind. And then she was so prolific that she could just crank it out. It was rare that uh, a clerk would do a draft judgment, but uh, and, and more likely what we were doing is trying to help her make up her mind in the first place. Uh, and that's done with the bench memo. So the clerk's duties, the clerk, a Supreme Court of Canada clerk uh, back then had three jobs. Now it's more like uh, two jobs. One was we dealt with uh, leaves to appeal. We had way too much uh, involvement in that, and we were making decisions about what should be granted leave to appeal and had too much influence in that. Well, that changed, but at the time, that's what we were doing. And sometimes an appeal would come up, and the chief justice would look around like, how did this happen? And the answer is some uh, (laughs) idiot clerk had thought that this was worthy of their attention. The second uh, job is the bench memo, which is is uh, you take all the written materials, all the factums, and you write like a prejudgment judgment, setting out the issues but providing some direction to try and help the judge going into the hearing uh, see what the issues are. And then the third job is to assist with the judgment. Sometimes you'd write a draft judgment, and then the judge would edit it, or the judge would write the first draft, and we would assist in research and editing. And there was a silly game, and I mean silly, uh, that the clerks played, where they would try to track a sentence that they wrote if it ended up in the judgment itself. So that you could say, I wrote that I wrote that sentence. And looking back, I just I shudder because that's not this isn't a game. Uh, however, the involvement of clerks, uh, I thought then, was um, many clerks thought that their impact was greater than it was. And I think that, they, that many of the clerks were overwhelmed by the responsibility and found it very stressful. I didn't, I think, in part because of the judge that I was clerking for. Uh, I had no doubt Uh, that she didn't need me and that my role was going to end up being uh, a little bit stylistic and that's about it. But it still must be pretty amazing and surreal even to be part of any judgment and then if that proceeds it now becomes the law of the entire nation so you're changing things or at least influencing things on such a macro scale. Do you think that that type of macro influence or change is what 
I guess, influenced you into politics pretty heavily? Do you think it contributed to that? The importance of the Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence and sentence by sentence, the importance of it, it's going to be lost on most clerks. We realize it later, but um, until you get into the trenches at the trial court level, you, you you don't come to see what the impact is and how enormous these judgments are. Being a part of it was uh, fantastic and remarkable and surreal. And uh, you just lived in this surreal world for a year. And it for me, it was like Disneyland. I just loved it. I loved every minute of it. And personally, I was amongst a sea of, you know, pretty nerdy legal people. I was the extrovert and the social animal that was trying to improve the social lives of the clerks. And my personality was coming out. My extroverted personality was really coming out at that time. It was just a period of a lot of confidence. I was going off to Harvard. Everybody was going off to something interesting. You know, the world was our oyster. Um, I had just started what would be a relationship that lasted for uh, over a decade and, and a couple of kids. And I was 26 years old. Also, it's it's for for a BC boy is quite a national experience. I, I, you know, I was uh, spending in Ottawa, I was spending more time with francophones than I'd ever spent in my life. Uh, spending time with clerks, uh, who were, um, al- almost all of them fluent. I wasn't, but I was, I was trying to learn French. So people used to joke that, um, uh, Beverly McLaughlin and I trying to speak French together, uh, was like a infomercial for federalism. Uh, <laughs> at the time, I mean, my French was horrible. Uh, she's, of course, fluent, but these were still early days for her. She had only been on the court. She turned 50 when I was at the court. She turned 50. She was on the Supreme Court of Canada, and she had her 50th birthday. Uh, I mean, I'm 50 now. I just I kind of can't, can't imagine that. Um, I think she went from county court judge to Supreme Court of Canada judge in less than 10 years. So she didn't have jurisprudence. Uh, she didn't have a big body of jurisprudence, whereas Susan's uh, ju- judge, that's how we referred to them. It was, it was in the um, my judge, my judge, my judge, um, my judge. Um, I didn't have a bunch of jurisprudence. Uh, Laferre, on the other hand, had a large body of Supreme Court of Canada and Court of Appeal jurisprudence. So her job was basically just to research the Laferre oeuvre and find out what the decision was. Uh, in McLaughlin's case, it was a lot of first principles, especially around the criminal law. Uh, I didn't know at the time how important the criminal law was going to be in my life. Uh, I didn't know that I was going to be involved in writing the test for the case that determines uh, the objective mens rea for the charge that would eventually get laid right. in my case in 2009. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that because you were talking about how every sentence has such a significant impact at the trial level in, you know, in the day-to-day that perhaps... Um, isn't appreciated by clerks, at least, uh, of the significance. And you dealt with that firsthand because, as you're about to say, and you wrote about this in your book, 28 Seconds, where you had helped draft the very judgment that would ultimately be the legal test for the allegations that related to your... Um, right. Yeah, I was uh, a know-it-all. And um, I McLaughlin took the objective mens rea approach, which uh, doesn't take into account 
uh, individual uh, frailties, for example. Not relevant to my own particular case, but very relevant to, say, somebody who's mentally ill or very relevant to somebody who their particular perception of what was going on at that time might be objectively skewed, but that's that was their perception. Yakabuchi and others uh, took the more traditional view that you needed to have some some subjective test for criminal negligence. Uh, anyways, uh, the the point being that uh, you're involved in these cases, and neither the clerk um, nor, in my case, the Supreme Court of Canada judge um, had very much trial experience, and. You know, the, the appellate judge with limited trial experience uh, is just uh, not going to have the same tools as someone who has the trial experience. In other words, it's just extremely academic. It was an extremely academic exercise uh, for me and for most clerks. Mm-hmm. You know, the judges, uh, for, for most of them, it's not an academic exercise. You know, they have a legal career such that they know very well how this is going to be interpreted. This is the clerks don't. You know, a lot of people have asked you over and over again about uh, August 31st, and I don't really want to get into that because I feel that it's been asked so many times and you wrote an entire book, 28 Seconds, on it. But I think for our listeners, it's uh, a lot of them are curious about how that changed your life and more more importantly, how it changed your perspective on the criminal justice system because you went from being um, Attorney General of the province, clerking with the Supreme Court of Canada, seeing everything from a very macro scale into the immediacy of the moment and the nitty-gritty of trial lawyers and what they see. And I know that's probably something that didn't happen immediately, but reflecting back on that, do you feel that you were perhaps naive on the way the day-to-day of the criminal justice system was working? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't. Um, I, what I did not uh, realize, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know how many do realize, um, and by that I mean um, I don't know how many justices of the peace and how many judges or how many prosecutors realize the, the feeling of being charged. Uh, what I didn't realize was how fearful the experience is for anyone who's been charged and how your judgment is clouded by the thought, which is not entirely true, but you feel that way, that the system is a juggernaut and a machine intended to find you guilty, that it's a, it's a guilt machine, and you're in it. It feels like there's no escape, and it feels like you are not up against one prosecutor or two prosecutors, but a thousand prosecutors and a thousand police officers. It surprised me to feel that way. All that, that juggernaut surprised me because I, more than anybody else I know, uh, talked up the justice system and its independence and its excellence. I uh, would give the speeches uh, at Superior Court and Ontario Court of Justice swearings in as Attorney General uh, talking about... um, the boast of Augustus that he found Rome of brick and left it of marble and that we uh, had a justice system of marble and we're going to leave it of gold. Uh, well, what a bunch of nonsense. Uh, that's not at all what it is. At best, it's brick. It's, it's a, it's a ragtag system. And um, I hadn't realized how disadvantaged uh, a defendant is in any circumstances. Now that, that, fairly quickly changed for me because I ended up with a a great criminal lawyer. 
And if you can get a great criminal lawyer and you can truly hand your life over to that person and say, look, I'm going to try and live for the next few years. You're going to take care of these charges and you tell me what I need to do. Uh, If you can get that, then that's the lawyer you want. Allison Wheeler uh, of the Ontario Court of Justice uh, clerked with me at the Supreme Court. And after I was charged, I called her and I said she'd worked for Eddie Greenspan. And I asked her, who who should I retain? And and that's what she said. Allison said, you want to have someone who you could hand your life over to. You have that much confidence in them and that you will then just be able to get on with your life and know that they're going to do everything. They are going to fight your fight. And uh, and that's what I got with Marie. And, you know, that's what uh, people get when they retain you, Sean. And there's a lot of and you've interviewed a lot of great criminal lawyers who fall into that category. Uh, but the judges and JPs and prosecutors uh, need to realize the enormous disadvantage psychologically and I'd say spiritually that somebody has when they've been charged with an offense. You just you're in you're you are in a dark night and you want out. And so you make bad decisions like I'm going to plead guilty just to get this over with. Uh, I spoke to someone the other day who got convicted of an offense and he said he was so much happier the day after he was convicted than he was the day before he was convicted. It was the uncertainty that was killing him. Uh, And that, but of course, (laughs) um, a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now, uh, that conviction is going to stay with him. It's a life sentence having a a criminal record, as you know, and uh, his ability to get a job is going to be very you know, substantially uh, crippled by by his criminal record. So, you know, people who have watched your case um, and just even building upon what you're saying there, critics have said, well, you still don't know what it's really like because you have Marie Hennon representing you. But what I think a lot of people don't realize, especially in the minutiae of detail, is you ended up uh, working very heavily in bail courts and uh, trial courts defending people who don't have the means to hire private counsel. And did that open up your perspective more and and uh, give you some insights into what can be done to ensure everyone gets a great defense? Yes. I mean, that was my experience as duty counsel in Brampton in bail court and then in mental health courts in uh, Toronto, Brampton, and uh, and then just all the criminal courts around the GTA, but especially um, as duty counsel at bail court. In the busiest bail court in the country, uh, I got to see it was like a big sample size, right? So this is the biggest sample size of criminal charges in Canada that you can get in Canada. If you're a duty counsel for the day, you're getting a pretty good snapshot of what the criminal justice system looks like. And what I saw was a whole bunch of people who looked like they just left a train wreck. Even the ones who uh, had a significant record, and this wasn't their first time to this rodeo, they're put in circumstances uh, that just encourage fear and terrible judgment. And so it, it, it confirmed my own experience. And people who just wanted to get out, plead guilty instead of waiting a night for a bail hearing. Well, I understand why. I mean, when, when I, I was only held for 16 hours, more than anything else, while I was being detained pending release and a decision hadn't been made as to whether to release me from the station or release or, or to send me to bail court. And the decision was made because I didn't have a criminal record and I wasn't a flight risk and I wasn't uh, at risk of recidivism. If they were going to treat me like they treated everybody else, they were going to release me from the station with conditions. 
Uh, but while that decision was being made and while they were deciding what to do with respect to the charges and while all that was going on, I just wanted out. That I just wanted out. I wanted to see my family. I wanted to see the sky. I wanted to get out of the the detention uh, that I was in. And that's what most people in bail court want. They want out. How do you feel that your ability to empathize with that feeling, uh, not just the feeling of being in custody, but also empathize with the feeling of how much, of, as you put it, a juggernaut it is of the system coming against one. Were you able to use that in your, some of your conversations and advice with people that you dealt with in bail court and as duty counsel? Yeah, I would tell them that I'd been arrested and I'd been detained. And we can get into this later, but I could see pretty quickly for many of them, addiction and alcoholism was part of their lives. Right. So I would tell them, and it was it was a lot for them to swallow because they're standing there amid five other defendants in a box with uh, they're cuffed because it's Peel police cuffing people in Brampton. They're cuffed, and we're not exactly having a private conversation, although we're trying to. And I'm talking to him, him or her over the plexiglass, and I'm telling him that they don't have to live this way anymore that I think they're innocent and that they're presumed innocent uh, and that I've been arrested and charged and I've been in the situation that they've been in and I understand that it's um, a brutal place to be right now. But here's my advice and then I give it to them. Mm. And the uh, sometimes they identify, sometimes they look at me disbelieving and uh, sometimes uh, there's occasionally some relief that there's somebody there who they, they can see is actually there to help them. And what uh, I don't think many people realize is that when you're in custody, you think everybody's out to get you except, you know, like your mother maybe. So when somebody shows up with a tie in front of you, you just assume this authority figure is not your friend. And so it it's the first thing a duty counsel has to do with a defendant is is convince them that you're there to represent them and be on their side. The way I would do that would be to try and identify with them, which obviously not every duty counsel can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they're they're still in fight, fight or flight mode. And when you're in fight or flight mode, you don't make good decisions. But that's how bail works. And if the system did anything, it could slow it down long enough that duty counsel could actually go and spend a minute just literally a minute with them, not in a context where they're in a, where they're in the prisoner's box to go through what their options are and realistically what's going to happen. But that's just not going to happen in the near future, just because of the uh, the way in which the justice system is working. It's just um, it's overworked and it's under strain. And I I I don't I don't say that as a criticism. I can't. Uh, this is one of the reckonings for me in my life is that I don't get to be uh, a know-it-all on the subject of the criminal justice system. I had an opportunity to change it and to fix it and to make it better. And um, however, whatever we did right and whatever we did wrong, we certainly didn't fix it. That's for sure. But I think that level of humility is a very important perspective for lawyers and judges and, the, and everyone within the judicial system to have. Um, you know, it, just to use a simple example, uh, it seemed that it was a new and positive thing that judges, I think was out in BC, had gone to view in custody to actually see what it was like. But you'd think that that would almost be expected right, right, right. from the beginning, right? right? And, th- and that sort of detachment and not having that humility and empathy um, seems to have an effect that is really hard to appreciate until you're actually in that 
prisoner's box. Do you think that there would be benefits that would come from those sorts of efforts um, from a, from on a macro scale? Yeah, I think that humility is going to serve a lawyer um, by assisting them to act in the interest of their client. If you're if if you have humility, then you're thinking about your client. You're not thinking about yourself. Humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. And the the point is to avoid that personality that a lot of lawyers have, where they are self centered. They've got a big ego. It allows them to perform the way that they do and succeed and excel the way that they do. But it also can get between you and your job sometimes. So for a prosecutor to not take it personally when they're in the midst of advocacy and to not impose their own personal judgment in a circumstance, but rather to see with humility what the facts are, what the evidence is, and realistically what ought to happen in that case, whether there's a reasonable prospect of conviction or whether or not that person should be, say, released on bail. Similarly, defense counsel need to do this in order to act in the best interest of their client as opposed to um, advance their career. Um, Judges and JPs need to do it because they need to see, I believe that judges and justices of the peace have got to look at defendants and see them as equals. Equals. The way our system's set up, they're literally on a bench above the prisoner in a box, often cuffed. That isn't a circumstance of equals, but uh, they are equals. In this country, we're equals. And the idea that they're the healer and the defendant is the wounded is wrong. That's not, that's not their job. They're equals. And I think they need to imagine themselves in that box. They need to see... What about that person they can identify with? Is there anything they can identify with? Is there somebody that they know that's just like that person? And if that's the case, then they can avoid engaging in um, a holier-than-thou judgment uh, that is just false. It's just not true. And it also permits them to accept the reality of, of what this individual is going through right now in these circumstances and take that into account while they're, say, assessing their testimony. So it's hard, you know, I think you're more likely to get nitpicky about uh, issues around credibility. Oh, I don't like the way this person looked. They were looking around. They, they weren't behaving in a, in a relaxed fashion. I, they clearly were lying. you got to be kidding me. You know, they're in the worst possible position. They are in a witness box and they're being questioned in circumstances where they're terrified. I don't think, I don't just, I don't know if JPs, if justices of the peace and judges and prosecutors realize how terrified many people are about walking up to a microphone and saying anything, let alone swearing on a holy book or, or swearing an affirmation and then being asked questions. Um, if they're a surety about, uh, about their son or daughter it's just absurd that we would um, expect a performance out of them that, that is confident. Um, in fact, what's going to happen is they're going to behave like somebody who's afraid, who isn't sure what's going on, who doesn't want to mess up, and who is going to be very imperfect. And that's not sympathetic. That's just compassionate. Uh, compassionate in the sense of seeing somebody as an equal and not as a, less, a lesser someone who isn't to be trusted. That's how you get the truth. 
What's really interesting in you describing this is some of so much of what you're talking about is on the very visceral level, talking about raw emotion and how people are feeling and how that is so essential to the obtaining justice itself. But did these micro issues ever cross your mind when you were acting as attorney general? And how do you think it might change things if you were in that position today? If you uh, had the knowledge you have now, the wisdom you have now, do you think you would have looked at things a little bit differently as attorney general? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think that the current attorney general and every prosecutor and police officer needs to ask themselves this question. Uh, is this person who's been charged or this person, if they're a police officer who you're investigating, do you think that they're the author of their own misfortune? That they're somehow, they must have done something wrong. And if that's the case, then you're prejudging them. You're not bringing any humility to the table. And you're guilty of what the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal was guilty of in Donald Marshall. That was the court that said that Donald Marshall was the author of his own misfortune. They, they basically assumed that he must have done something wrong. And they based it on uh, a subconscious racist assumption about Indians. That's what they did. So if a judge or an attorney or a senior prosecutor or a justice of the peace is looking at someone and sizing them up and making a judgment about them and thinking, oh, you must have done something to end up in cuffs in a witness box in Brampton, um, then you're engaging in palm tree justice. Uh, the truth is you, you need to assume that they're innocent. The presumption of innocence is not operating in our justice system, at least as often as it should. Instead, there really is a presumption of guilt that's operating, especially amongst naive politicians who haven't spent time in a bail court or in the cells or with people who live on or near the street. And that is an experience, actually, that, you know, I think many judges could have, but many judges don't have, particularly, you know, with respect to those who get appointed quickly to the Court of Appeal. I don't know if um, an academic who goes onto the bench or if an appellant lawyer or or if an appellant judge or if an attorney general has the experience um, that I now have but I didn't have, uh, which is to um, feel and experience and see firsthand the wide expanse of humanity, good and, and bad and rough and terrifying. And I didn't have that. I mean, I was um, as uh, when I was appointed, I was 37 years old. I was a 37 year old attorney general. I walked up to Ian Scott, who was a hero of mine at the swearing in. And he said, "Um, 37, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And he shook his head. Um, And I was so proud of the fact that I was a young attorney general. It's funny, the, the, the ministry staff didn't think this was something to brag about. (laughs) <laughs> they knew what the that there was uh it was great to have the energy of a 37 year old attorney general and the enthusiasm of a 37 year old attorney general but you also were getting the experience of a 37 year old attorney general which you know obviously wasn't much mm-hmm. uh so uh yeah it, i mean if i was attorney general tomorrow uh i would spend all my time fighting for the underdog fighting um to preserve and expand the presumption of innocence in every part of the justice system. And I wouldn't spend a minute on many of the things that I did spend on because I didn't know any better. 
when you you talk about presumption of innocence and what we've seen a lot as of late is uh, not just uh, an erosion of that within the criminal justice system, which I happen to think is far more pervasive these days, um, but certainly within the public sphere. Um, perhaps the, the more accurate phrase within the public sphere is due process. And what we saw, uh, we see this a lot in social media and and reflection on this interview um it, it, I thought that a lot of that actually seemed to, I wouldn't say start, but you could see the early signs of this sort of um, a public engagement, the, the court of um, social media, so to speak, happen with your case. Um, do you think that is having an effect upon the justice system? And is there anything that can or should be done? You know, one thing that has always, um, as of late anyway, uh, frustrated me is I see more and more politicians refusing to stand up for due process and, if anything, um, suggesting the opposite. And uh, is there an obligation on politicians to ensure that that isn't eroded? Most judges and justices of the peace are of an age where I doubt they're engaging significantly on social media. If they are, it's dangerous because I don't know if they realize that it's an alternative universe that is not necessarily reflective of reality. Your generation, Sean, uh, mine, I'm 52, as more and more of my peers start going on the bench, you're going to have people, and certainly this is true of prosecutors too, and police who are going onto social media and maybe wrongly imagining that that is some kind of a place of legitimate judgment when in fact it's a place where people are venting their opinions and I also think it's a place where a lot of mental illness uh, bubbles up and you get um, a lot of uh, disproportionately extreme views then whipping everybody up into a frenzy which then leads to a debate that's actually on the margins you know I engage in social media myself because I have to it's part of my job as the head of CCLA it was part of my job to try and promote my practice as a criminal lawyer uh, if you're a politician uh, it's got to be part of your life as well uh, but it's a big mistake to allow your your principles to be set by uh, Twitter and when uh, you know when we when we see the reaction uh, from the federal government, to issues in the justice system that have them abandoning uh, well-wrought principles of due process. Uh, it, you know, I, I, I know for what they imagine to be progressive reasons uh, in a way that fundamentally misconstrues the justice system, which is not designed for the masses and is not designed for the, um, the complainants or the victims but rather is designed to provide due process to the accused. That seems to be lost on this federal government in a way that has obviously deeply disappointed the defense bar who were promised, and, um, and that promise, of course, has uh, been betrayed uh, by uh, getting a government that in, in some ways is worse than the Harper government in terms of what they've been doing to the criminal justice system. This government has been taking away due process rights quarter by quarter and doing nothing uh, to get rid of uh, the mandatory minimum sentences that they promised to get rid of when they when they were elected and of course it's hard to make the 
get any political momentum around this critique because nobody believes it. Most people think, oh, it's the Trudeau government. They're they're civil libertarian. Uh, they're they uh, they're lefties. They they wouldn't be oppressive uh, to the criminal justice system when in fact that is the case. Uh, and uh, if you look at their reforms, especially around efficiency. I mean, as you know, efficiency in the criminal justice system uh, is not what you want. You don't want an efficient criminal justice system because that means less due process. And less due process uh, means a greater chance of uh, convicting the innocent. And But that's exactly what they're doing. When I see we're going to create efficiencies in the justice system, what I hear is we're going to be taking more and more rights away from the accused, the most vulnerable people that we have in our state today. We're going to take rights away from them in the name of what, what, why, so that uh, judges and justices of the peace can be less frustrated by how long a case takes. Uh, we're doing it for their peace of mind. Or why are we doing it to save money? The justification for it. Uh, is applying, uh, you know, an economic test to a part of the state that is not supposed to be economical, literally. I mean, we are not supposed to look at the justice system and judge it based upon an audit, a bottom-line audit, in terms of how much it costs and how many convictions it gets and how much uh, the convictions cost per conviction. No, uh, you test a justice system based on uh, whether the principles of fundamental justice, the due process, are uh, respected and upheld and you test a justice system based on how many wrongful convictions there are and I think you test a justice system based on how you treat people who are supposed to be presumed innocent. And to the extent you can create efficiencies, uh, the, those attacks seem always to be against the very things you're just talking about, which is uh, the, the end results of miscarriages of justice and uh, proper acquittals and so forth, but you never hear uh, attacks on what you know to be the true inefficiency, such as set date court. And many people will hear that and say, what is set date court? And the answer is exactly, because that isn't a politically um, powerful statement to say that we have people wasting an entire day in court multiple times to just be adjourned another three weeks. Uh, and there's many efficiencies, if we're truly after that, that could be achieved by, for example, just digitizing that entirely um, as an example. So anyways, my, what I'm leading into is a question is, what do you think is going through um, politicians' minds when they're reacting to these things, often on Twitter, and saying things like, you know, people uh, with gun possession are getting out in 20 minutes, which every lawyer knows is just categorically false in criminal justice. That just does not happen. And yet uh, statements like that and other statements, um, which, again, erode the justice system and people's confidence in what goes through a politician's mind, speaking from experience, when those sorts of things are said? Is it is it trying to you know, uh, quell the outrage of the public? Is it to stop uh, comments on Twitter? What what do you think is happening there? And what's the ultimate effect and disadvantage? I mean, I've done that. I did that when I was in politics. And the optimistic appraisal of politicians who are saying things like that is that they're trying to uh, generate confidence in the justice system. Uh, The pessimistic appraisal, uh, which applied to me uh, sometimes as well, is they're trying to curry popularity. It's just as simple as that. They're trying to tell people what they want to hear. They're trying to say things that uh, people will say, yeah, I knew it's true. And unfortunately, um, when I did it, I was doing it out of ignorance. And uh, assumption 
around uh, gang violence and gun violence and and organized crime that I had uh, was based upon information that I'd been given by the ministry. I don't think anybody in the ministry was trying to mislead me or mislead themselves, but there's a mindset uh, that there's something extremely organized and evil going on out there in society and that we need to get ahead of it. I called it organized justice, um, just as you have organized crime, you need organized justice. Um, the truth is, and you know this, and every criminal defense lawyer knows this, and if you listen to a wiretap long enough, you'll come to realize that organized would not be the word <laughs> I would use to describe criminal that activity. So true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's nothing that's portrayed, well, I don't know if there's nothing, but I personally haven't come across, I don't know how often you have come across, a, a criminal enterprise. I mean, even calling it an enterprise is a joke. I mean, it is uh, it is by and large a ragtag group of people who are mentally ill, addicted, or alcoholic, who are living a life such that they're in a lot of pain and they're doing things to get out of pain. And as a result, they make judgments and they do things that, yes, have consequences. And in some cases, yes, they've done something wrong and there are consequences. And, you know, they're there in many cases ought to be a criminal conviction and in you know and an appropriate sentence there needs to be some accountability there's no question that's the case but uh, you know the level of organized crime that's imagined uh, I think by our justice system is greatly exaggerated and the truth is that um, uh, this it's just it's just a large collection of sad sacks and uh, it's there's no pervasive evil out there, and the idea that everybody that there's some evil people and some good people, uh, I I I just don't think that's the way it is. I think that they're all inherently good. I really do. I think we are all inherently good, but I think we lose ourselves. And somebody who's before the criminal justice system is innocent and needs to be treated as such until such time as you know it's been proven that they're guilty. At which point, um, that doesn't make them evil. They're the same person that they were the day before. The efficiency, if you want to have efficiencies in the justice system, sure, go ahead, but you got to take it out on the other side. Don't take away due process rights. Take away all these chicken shit charges. Uh, I think everybody, you know, there's one thing the attorney general can do. There's one thing a police chief can do, a police board can do. Get rid of the chicken shit charges and get rid of all the chicken shit prosecutions. And I don't know what the percentage is, but it's... I mean, I think it's a third to a half of the 500,000 criminal prosecutions a year uh, that we have in Ontario are chicken shit charges. You know, administration of justice offenses, bail breaches, probation breaches, um, uh, assault simpliciter, um, uh, mischief, um, you know, and, you know, these wrongful use of computer charges uh, that exist when, you know, the police storm uh, somebody's house and turns out they haven't committed a crime but they need to charge them with something. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it seems like a little boy's industry sometimes when you, when, you look at, when, you, when you look at the actual evidence of what actually happened and get rid of all that nonsense. And then, then, you'll, then you'll get some efficiencies and you'll get a, a prosecutor and a police officer who's spending time on something where there is substantial evidence that a, that a crime has taken place and now you got to do the work that needs to be done, the state does, in order to prosecute uh, the person uh, to the extent of the law. 
but at the same time, um, you can't do that while you're prosecuting all these um, piddly offenses that we continue to grind through the system. So in describing what you're, what are obviously inefficiencies and, and changes and maybe even perspective changes that could benefit the justice system, a lot of this seems to suggest a certain degree of courage. And I wonder if uh, those types of profound changes that are needed uh, if there's there's some courage that's also required of defense lawyers to perhaps recalibrate and think, is there other ways going about this? And one point of controversy that often comes up is whether or not the certificate system has run its course. And, you know, we see contrasting jurisdictions like Nova Scotia, where uh, it's a staffed duty council or public defender system compared to Ontario, where people, uh, depending on eligibility, will be given certificates that they can then choose a lawyer of their preference if uh, that lawyer will accept it. So I'm curious because you've you've done both now. You've you've represented people privately, but you've also worked right in the trenches um, as duty counsel. And you wrote a very interesting piece in the Criminal Lawyers Association newsletter about perhaps how undervalued those lawyers are and how great of a job they actually do on a day-to-day. So do you think some of that reckoning maybe has to come from the defense lawyers and, and maybe there needs to be a greater emphasis put on the, if we can call it the public defender side of things? Let's put it this way. There seems to be a new track uh, where uh, duty counsel become justices of the peace. You are increasingly seeing that happen where a duty counsel, staff duty counsel, full-time duty counsel, gets appointed as a justice of the peace. In the same way as you had a track of a defense counsel or crown, but let's focus on crowns, who uh, put their time in, excellent lawyers, um, become the president of the Crown Attorneys Association, and get appointed to, uh, to the Ontario Court of Justice. The, the difference is, uh, how many opportunities are there to be staff, duty counsel, or in essence, a public defender? And the answer is, as you know, very few. There are very, very few. And the reason for that is not based on the evidence or the efficacy. It's just based on the um, the normative view of the defense bar in Ontario that a certificate system is better than the alternative. And there are studies and arguments that go on both sides, but... The normative argument of certificate system uh, then goes and finds the evidence to back it up, not the other way around. In Nova Scotia, we've got the reverse, as you said, where it's primarily public defender with some certificates. I've seen the duty counsel at Brampton who do trials, right? There's a, there's a, there's a few of them that do everything. And they do it for clients who... Uh, can't hang on to a certificate. Literally, they go through four or five lawyers. They keep firing them, and they're at the point where they're not going to get a certificate. But they're fortunate because they happen to be in Brampton, where you can get a duty counsel who will take your file. In all those cases, those people are just very mentally ill. That's what's going on. It's not anything more than that. So, um, this is a client who no lawyer. No defense lawyer would want to take on, amongst other things, because they're going to get a complaint to the law society. And because they've seen three of their criminal defense colleagues had this person as a client and they all got fired, 
Um, and uh, so you need to have duty counsel for those particular cases, and it can't just be in Brampton. And what happens outside of Brampton is those people be, just go unrepresented. So you, at the very least, need to have a public defender system for that group of clientele who are actually unrepresentable through the certificate system. And then you get into um, either what's the best way to run the system from the defense lawyer's perspective or what's the best way to run the, the system from the defendant's perspective. And clearly, from a defense lawyer perspective, the certificate system is preferable because you can have a private practice and take certificates along the way as you build up your private practice. The self-interest in the argument means we, we do need to have the defense bar take a step back uh, and recognize the, um, the reality that it is out of self-interest that they're making that argument. And, you know, I, I don't see why we wouldn't continue to do what Ian Scott did. And Ian was a fan of the judicature system, the certificate-based system. Uh, but he thought there was no reason why you couldn't have uh, public defenders and what we call staff lawyers or duty counsel uh, in some courthouses in some circumstances to see how it would work. And then it just comes down to who it is. So um, a, a good lawyer, public defender, is going to do a, a great job for all their clients. Uh, a good lawyer certificate is going to do a great job for all their clients, but we all know that n- not everyone out there uh, it, who are, uh, is a certificate lawyer is a great lawyer. We know that. Uh, many are, but not everyone is. We know that not everybody who works in the duty counsel system is a great lawyer. Uh, at least with the public defender system, you know, you you would have uh, uh, professionals basing um, the skills of a lawyer uh, from an objective perspective and an experienced perspective on their merit. So if Legal Aid Ontario is hiring good lawyers, uh, aren't you more apt to get a good lawyer for someone than you are asking a defendant who knows nothing about the criminal justice system to determine who ought to get the certificates. So either we need to be a lot more choosy about who goes on the panel and who stays on the panel on Legal Aid Ontario and keeps certificates, uh, or we need to expand the uh, public defender system. And then the last thing to think about is whether or not it makes sense that you can be a prosecutor, make a decent living, uh, be a lawyer uh, and work in criminal law, but not uh, defense counsel, uh, make a decent living, uh, be a lawyer in criminal law uh, at the state's expense. You know, the, uh, the, the great criminal lawyers also have to be pretty good business people. Uh, all of them have to be pretty good business people. And some people just aren't. They're, they're very good lawyers, but they're just not good business people. Those people now, today, in, um, in Ontario, they become crowns. They become prosecutors. That's where they go because that's the only place for them to go. Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, it's long been the case that legal aid has been the, the poor cousin of the prosecution system. I certainly didn't help that trend, and I'm accountable for that. And so I don't have any fingers to point at anybody uh, other than myself on that front. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we ought not to try and turn that around. And the way to do that. I think, would be to um, increase the number of duty counsel and public defenders. That would be the way in which you would get these changes. If you look at what happened with the Crown Prosecution Service and the investments that are made in prosecuting, a lot of it can be attributed to um, uh, labor. Uh, The labor movement, through the Criminal uh, Ontario uh, Crown Attorneys Association, uh, received arbitration uh, findings that 
significantly change the budget for prosecution in Ontario. Similarly, I think the labor movement for public defenders will change that for uh, the public defense system. And it's a lot. And from a political perspective, you know, how much judges get paid, um, a politician can say, well, that's a constitutional process, how much judges get paid. And we don't really have a lot of say in it. Same with crown attorneys, salaries. Um, Well, there was an arbitration. There was a ruling. Here's how much they get paid. Uh, people, I think the public understands that, that if there's a, a, a system out there that spits out a, a budget number, then that's got to be the budget number. That, I actually think it's going to be the labor movement through the duty council system, in other words, a public defender system, that's going to bring, um, that's going to cause all the boats to rise on the defense side um, because of uh, the unionization that finally Legal Aid Ontario agreed to of duty council. There's also something very um, politically difficult to present when lawyers are getting paid on a tariff system because uh, what what the public hears is they're getting paid $110 an hour. And that's all they hear. Um, but what they don't hear about is the limits on those tariffs. They don't hear about how um, a very large portion of that is going to go to business expenses and overhead and uh, all the other things you need to do to, as you say, run a good business. Um, whereas, you know, a budget that is uh, set as a salary that a lawyer gets paid X per year um, as opposed to gross build this and doesn't get into the finer details of what the net take home was, um, maybe something that, uh, well, I'll ask you, do you think that that is, it, was that a struggle for politicians to even try and sell uh, that lawyers wanted increases in the tariffs? Was that something that was almost like shooting fish in a barrel as a politician to come back at and say, well, you're already getting paid X? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's right. I mean, it's been um, uh, unintentionally set up to to fail. Uh, it's been unintentionally set up to be a political nightmare <laughs> uh, for uh, anyone who wants uh, appropriate investment in our justice system. And that's what this is. This is about appropriate investment in the justice system to ensure that the principles of fundamental justice the due process rights are respected. That's all this is. This is about ensuring that we don't have wrongful convictions and ensuring that if your nephew or cousin or uncle or sister or buddy gets charged in circumstances where they're innocent, that in fact, at the end of the day, they they are acquitted or the charges are dropped. Um, so if you put it that way, then I think people will say, well, okay, our healthcare system gets this and education gets that. Justice should get this. But if you say to them, so this lawyer over here, they, they make $110 an hour. Whoa, whoa, what, what, what? They make what? <laughs> but the reality is is that the volume that you need to generate of certificate business in order to make a living, in order to make as much as, say, a first-year crown, the volume of certificate work that you need to do is so high that if, if that's your practice and it's not a mix of that and in cash files, uh, it's very hard to give your client the attention that they deserve. And and the economies of scale are such that it it I don't think the current, well, I don't think, I, I know that the current judicature system, it's crumbling, and we're seeing that. You see, as much as anybody, how many people go into the criminal, in, into a career of criminal defense law, and then go out. 
right? It happens all the time. Right. They go in, they they try and do it, they can't make a living, they become a crown. Right. And that's particularly uh, true among younger lawyers right. who come out and with the best of intentions and very bright people who, despite student debt, uh, know that they want to do the right thing. And against all odds, they open up and just the hard reality of that sets in and, and very, very few people can persist. And what um, seems to be heard a lot amongst uh, concerns within Legal Aid Ontario is what's called the grain of the bar. But yet, on the other side of things, there's nothing done to try and offset that. If anything, it's become far worse. Certainly, when I started as a defense lawyer, it was um, it wasn't uh, incredibly lucrative, but you could certainly survive and build a practice. Um, but I feel that that has changed a lot, and you're seeing uh, younger lawyers, criminal lawyers, either going into grounds as you say, if they can, or duty counsel work. Um, but with duty counsel, uh, it seems as though that doesn't want to be doesn't seem to be the end game for a lot of them because they see themselves wanting to do murder trials and there's a cap to the caliber of cases that they can take on and and I wonder if maybe if that cap wasn't there and and public defender systems were able to take on those higher caliber cases whether you would retain that type of quality in in lawyers so let me ask you Michael did you ever reach a point in in all of this i mean you've had an amazing journey um remarkable in so many ways was there a point where you just said, enough, I'm out of law, I can't do this anymore? And if so, what drove you back? Or did you just say, you know, this is something I can't leave? I um, I mean, it kept, it, it always came back to me. It doesn't really matter what I, I mean, I, I, I went through a period of time where I actually thought that I was the architect of my own life. And then I came to see what, um, um, I came to see that that's not the case. Uh, David Foster Wallace wrote that uh, the truly meaningful events in your life, we don't engineer. Uh, and uh, based on the, as he put it, the life's blessings and dope slaps, um, you, you do, sometimes life shows up at your doorstep in a way that you could not possibly have engineered, and you have to deal with it. So, from uh, what happened is the the justice system kept on coming back to me in many ways, and I eventually found that I, I couldn't avoid it. So uh, one way or the other, it's always come back to me, uh, whether I liked it or not. You know, there have been times where I thought that I needed to um, start a new, completely new career and was interested in that. And I wanted, I just, I want, I just wanted to feel different. You know, I didn't, I didn't like where my career was. I wasn't happy with where my career was. You know, I had once been on a pedestal and my ego wasn't getting what it used to get. And everybody goes through that in their life, I think. And um, th- I know some lawyers on Bay Street who make a lot of dough uh, hit a point where they feel like they need to have a complete career change and then they end up sticking with what got them there because um, it's just what you're supposed to do. Uh, and in my case, this is clearly just what I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to be near um, the justice system, law, rights, uh, and now... It's in the context of uh, leading the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, not something that I ever would have imagined doing uh, 20 years ago at all. Uh, All my delusions of grandeur were about me 20 years ago. Uh, Now, um, honestly, all my delusions uh, of grandeur are for um, advancing the rights of others and assisting people 
who are the most vulnerable when faced with the juggernaut of the state. And that's what the Canadian Civil Liberties Association tries to do. So what are the gratifying moments that you're getting in your day-to-day now in this new position, and, and what do you hope to achieve over the next little while? Again, everything's different for me now. I mean, this organization, uh, for almost all of its history, was defined by its leader, Alan Borovoy. I don't think that that's the future of this organization for, uh, for the time being. I think, actually, uh, the people who work here um, the uh, women and uh, one other guy who works here uh, besides myself um, who uh, are basically general counsel on a series of files uh, that are in the courts across Canada, the pro bono lawyers um, who continue to, um, from all different parts of the law and practice, um, who uh, could be billing um, a lot uh, for the pro bono work that they're doing, are, are all trying to advance some um, uh, fundamental freedoms, uh, due process rights um, for uh, Canadians. And so, I, I, you know, the gratification comes from their successes. You know, last week, uh, the CCLA um, and their pro bono counsel from Montreal had the NICAB law prohibition struck down in Quebec. Um, the Quebec government thought that it was in the public interest that people wearing a niqab in the public service needed to take it off. Um, it was obviously an anti-Muslim law, and it was nothing, nothing more and nothing less than that. And uh, the uh, and the Quebec courts agree, and so we'll we'll now we'll take that through appellate courts. But you know that wouldn't have happened without that pro bono counsel work. That wouldn't have happened without the work that Noah Mendelson does here uh, at CCLA. And that's just one case, one day, one result. And uh, this organization gets an opportunity to do that kind of thing uh, every day. And I'm my job right now is actually to support them and um, get the uh, support that they need uh, and do the management and fundraising that's needed to keep uh, this organization um, robust, especially now. Canada has enjoyed a period of immunity from the, the populist populism that has struck Um, the Western world. And uh, so Hungary, the United States, and Trump, um, the United Kingdom, um, uh, obviously Russia, um, so many, and in Central America, South America, everywhere around the world, uh, populism is impacting um, uh, nations in a fashion that demolishes civil liberties. And by and large, um, you know, we've been immune from that in Canada, um, although we got plenty of it through the Harper government and their mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, however, you know, the days of Canada having all liberal NDP governments in provincial and federal legislatures uh, is now coming to an end. We had that up until a few months ago. Every legislature was either NDP or liberal in Canada. And that's obviously started to change and Ontario is the first place that it's changed and we'll have to see what this new government brings but even the uh, but even the Trudeau government um, if you look at their justice policy what is it it's a populist justice policy that's what it is it seems to be driven by Twitter uh, it is not uh, driven by the principles of fundamental justice that got entrenched in the charter by Trudeau senior uh, it's being um, it, it's you know it's turning into uh, a Twitter-run justice system, which, of course, is mob rule, uh, which is not what Canada should be or what any democracy should be. 
So how does the case come to the CCLA and what are the ones that you approve and want to take on? Uh, you know, it's a mix. Um, t- uh, sometimes it's really obvious. Um, sometimes a lawyer will bring it to us and pitch it to us. Um, uh, often, um, thanks to our board um, and, you know, to take criminal law, uh, Frank Adario, uh, Marlis Edwards, Anil Kapoor are on the board uh, to name three criminal lawyers. And they um, uh, are because it's their job to be on top of uh, criminal law jurisprudence from coast to coast to coast, they, they are often on top of it too. So uh, that's on the criminal side and on the uh, fundamental freedom side, you know, we, we just constantly, and with the help of technology, are monitoring cases to see which ones we should be jumping on. Increasingly, CCLA, uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and for that matter, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, uh, has been um, advancing these causes through public interest litigation. So in the case of solitary confinement, BCCLA led, um, uh, brought an action uh, in the BC uh, Supreme Court, it's called, and, um, and CCLA then brought an application in the Ontario Court, um, Associate Justice Morocco presiding, uh, where... Um, we were the applicants, CCLA, and they were the plaintiffs. Um, I'm I'm interested in CCLA, um, you know, which at one point was it. We were the only game in town when it came to public interest litigants in Canada for, you know, for decades in the 60s and 70s. Thereafter, thanks to Alan Borovoy and all the people who, uh, who worked as pro bono counsel. Now there's a lot of us out there, right? So I'm, I'm interested in partnering and aggregating and cooperating and uh, integrating um, our efforts and, um, and, and playing a role in that fashion as much as uh, CCLA uh, actively um, goes its own way too. We partner with the National Council of Canadian Muslims uh, in Quebec, and uh, we um, have partnered in the past with John Howard Society of Canada, and we want to do more partnering like that in the future, whether it be with Amnesty International or with um, another provincial civil liberties association in uh, uh, in a different province, um, and particularly in Quebec, where um, we do have a presence in the court on the NICAB case, but otherwise not what it should be uh, compared to other provinces. And, uh, you know, our aspiration is to be a national organization truly, um, as opposed to being primarily an Ontario uh, focused organization. We really want to be in every province and operate in every province, not um, necessarily uh, as the plaintiff or the applicant, um, but often working with a local provincial organization. Uh, or um, recently, we're an intervener in Atlantic Canada um, on a, a prominent immigration law case. And you know, we'll, there's a there's a long history of CCLA doing that as intervener, but we can also do it as plaintiff and applicant too. So I'll. Ask you one final question uh, to uh, to close uh, what I think was a really really great interview, um, and that is, what advice would you give to a young lawyer or law student, you know, uh, Michael Bryan, as he's just leaving Osgood, uh, who wants to pursue uh, civil liberties and and making sure that everything you just discussed is protected for Canadians moving forward in what is a pretty volatile time in history. You know, I think somebody who wants to uh, engage and advance civil liberties in Canada, um, I, I would say, please join the Canadian <laughs> Civil Liberties Association. Go on our website, become a member. It's very affordable. 
and um, uh, get on our mailing list. Um, volunteer. Uh, if you're a lawyer, um, let us know. Uh, let us know what you're interested in working on. And if you're a young lawyer, maybe we can get you to help us out by writing a, a memorandum or a report or a draft op-ed. Um, in that, that would be, it's like Anita Zaghetti said in your interview, um, uh, engaging and assisting us in doing our work is going to be a lot more helpful than asking someone here to come out for a coffee with you and give you career advice. Uh, why don't we help each other by um, helping the underdogs that we're trying to uh, represent and assist here? And that way I get to see what kind of work they do and they get to see what kind of work we do. Um, secondly, you know, I think people just need to get the best experience they can as a lawyer. And whether that's at a big firm or a small firm, that's largely I find that those decisions get made for us, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> and, um, and at the beginning of somebody's career, um, if you're not sure whether or not to start out in a solo practice or work in uh, one of the big box firms, if you get hired by one of the big box firms, you just take that job. And you'll get an opportunity to go work as a solo practitioner later. It's very hard to do it the other way around. Um, lastly, um, I don't wait to start doing what you love. However long it takes, get some of the skills that you need. But as soon as you have enough to get up on your feet, then uh, start doing what you want to do. And, you know, be, be a leader within your own life. And that means going to your bosses at the big box firms or going to your bosses um, within the ministry of whatever ministry you're working in or the nonprofit you're working at and say, look, I, 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 want, to, I want to start doing more of this work and um, I'm going to start doing more of this work and I'm going to make sure I fulfill my other commitments with this firm, but that's what I'm going to do. And I think people will be amazed. I think people want that kind of leadership and they want to see that kind of leadership. And, um, you know, your bosses will let you know uh, when, uh, when you get unprofitable. Uh, but I just, I find that most mentors want you to become a good lawyer first and uh, they worry about your profitability and they assume that it will come with time. Uh, you would know better than I because uh, you, you have to pay the salaries of these people. I'd say that uh, people who want to engage in that need to um, take the advice of saints past and get close to the poor. Get close to the poor. That doesn't mean give money to the poor, uh, but I hope you do that too. That doesn't just mean donate to issues involving the poor or work for the poor, but get close to them. Um, and I did that through a homeless drop-in center. You can do that actually by going into criminal courts. Um, but I think it's that experience that educates people and allows people to do a better job at representing underdogs more than anything else. Well, Michael, I'm going to let you get back to that then and uh, fighting for everyone's liberties and getting close to the poor. Uh, thank you so much for participating in our podcast. I'm sure uh, everyone will have loved uh, to learn from all the wisdom you've accumulated over the years. Thanks, Sean. I uh, love this show. appreciate you doing this. And um, um, thanks for all you've done to advance my criminal law career, as unprofitable as it may have been. <laughs>